Hey everybody, welcome to the Local Japan Podcast. I have a very exciting announcement to share today. It, it's one that I've definitely put off for several months, just because it was in the works and I wasn't sure if and when it was going to happen and, you know, I didn't want to jinx myself or anything. But, uh, so I've been working with this carpentry group, right, uh, in Kobe for a long time now that I've been sharing on the podcast. And, you know, I've built up some really nice relationships there and the, the boss the boss man of the company, he has many properties in his possession and he's got a lot of projects that he's doing right now. And there's one property in particular that he has no plans for in the in, in the immediate future. And so he's really happy to allow me to acquire this property to start my own project. And so that's the announcement is come January, we'll get this all f- officially figured out. Um, officially transferred over and then I will be able to start the renovation of my very own abandoned farmhouse in Japan. It's uh, in the mountains of Kobe, a little bit north. It's really quite accessible. It's just a 45-minute train ride to the closest station from the city center and then from the station it's pretty much just a five-minute walk up this hill and then you're there. The building itself was registered is built in 1927 or so and so i'll be able to restore this building just before it's 100th birthday which is such a cool little thing and uh, i'll definitely be sure to share photos with you all on the substack feed in your in especially if you get if you subscribe then you'll you'll get the email with all the photos because i the photos don't show up on the podcast itself Uh, you have to subscribe to Substack, but I'll, I'll share those photos, and and so you, got, you guys can check out what it looks like now, which is in very bad condition, and then also how it will progressively get better once the the project starts. So it's pretty awesome uh, to be able to say that, and uh, just want to thank all of you for your support um, for these many many months, a lot of sleepless nights trying to figure this all out, and so it's really starting to happen, and it's uh, it's so exciting, and uh, I can't wait. So. In near the end of the year, and then now, since I'm visiting family back in California for the holidays, almost all of my time has just been consumed reading about home building. So I've read several books on uh, architecture, engineering, and on home building and build science. So some of those books are a little bit on the denser side, where they talk about in physics, right? Like compression and tension of different materials. Um, on today's podcast, though, before we dive into those very practical uh, subjects of home building and home renovation and engineering, uh, I wanted to go down to the most basic fundamental level of all of this. And it's piggybacking off of the conversation I had last month with Mr. Nicholas Boy Smith, the founder of Create Streets, the Create Streets Foundation in the United Kingdom, where he's on a mission to build more beautiful buildings and more beautiful streets in the United Kingdom. If you heard the podcast, uh, first of all, you should listen to that podcast first and then come to this podcast where I'm going to review the book uh, titled Beauty, a a very short introduction uh, by Sir Roger Scruton. And Sir Roger Scruton co-wrote a report 
on building beautifully in the United Kingdom, along with uh, with Mr. Nicholas Boy Smith. So I started. We started the conversation with uh, Mr. Boy Smith on the policy side of how to implement beautiful streets and uh, what what does that look like practically. And this podcast, I'm going to bring it down to the more philosophical side of what is beauty even and getting insight from Sir Roger Scruton, the uh, the late Sir Roger Scruton. And you might be asking me, like, Jared, why are you, what does this have to do with local Japan? Your, your podcast has had a local Japan. How could Sir Roger Scruton possibly contribute to to the subject matter of local Japan? And what I would say is the project stems from a, a problem that I encountered when I first arrived in Japan. I saw that in the old neighborhoods of Kyoto and also the countryside across the country, there were beautiful, beautiful old buildings. And then I also saw that the urban landscape of Japan was incredibly ugly and just offensive to the eyes, really. And I became really concerned with what makes something beautiful because what I have found this is also increasingly true in the United States. People start to think that beauty is subjective. That beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Where if some amateur builds a very monotonous apartment complex, or if a business builds a strip mall, or if an architect builds a really crazy styled building in the downtown area, People are allowed to call that beautiful, even if it isn't. And that's that's really upsets me because I'm holding on to the beautiful part of Japan that I saw. And I don't like watching it slip away. And I don't like watching it slip away to people who can claim that something is beautiful when it isn't. Because I just feel it deep down in my bones that it isn't. And so I have this intuition, but it's really hard to fight against the um, moral relativist because they have, they have their arguments. And so how do you justify that beauty is not in the eye of the beholder, that there is actually some kind of rational reason behind beauty? That's not easy to get down to. And that deeply influences Japan and the local people there because in my belief, if a local people are oriented towards beauty, which I believe is universal, then they should be able to gather together in a democratic way to build a neighborhood that they want, in a neighborhood that is beautiful, that is uh, coherent, that has a style, that, that respects the local region, that expresses a sense of home and is in harmony with its surrounding natural landscape. So I believe that can happen, but that can happen only if we have a, a rational understanding of what beauty is, in my opinion. And so I've, I've been thinking about, you know, some like the greatest thinkers of all time, what makes them so great is that they're simple. So like when you think about, I don't know, like a good stereotype is Steve Jobs. He's such a prolific speaker and he had his thoughts so clearly marked out in his mind that he that's what made him such a great communicator and that's what 
made him so effective as a as a leader, as someone with a vision, and someone who could recruit a team to go along with that vision. It requires clear thought and clear articulation of those thoughts. And so my attempt today is to read Roger Scruton's book, Beauty, and try my best to boil it down to the clearest thought that I can, that there is some kind of universal beauty that surrounds us that we should be oriented towards and we should try to carve into the world. The terrible artwork that's in the MoMA or in the Tate Modern, that that stuff is in fact not beautiful. And if somebody wants to splatter paint on a page, um, they can do that, but that they cannot claim that is beauty. Because that's, to me, that's not fair. Let's see if we can accomplish that today. Or more practically for, for us, that somebody can build some kind of square box in the countryside of Japan and make sure that they are not able to claim that that is beautiful or that that is somehow acceptable. I want to say a final thank you to all of you who are subscribed to my email uh, newsletter uh, by Substack. You get the podcast, show notes, all the resources and uh, and future photos uh, directly onto your onto your email. And uh, it really does make a big difference for me in terms of just keeping me motivated, making sure that I'm um, I'm providing insights that are useful. And, and for those of you who are both, you know, subscribe for free and for paid, it really does make a big difference. I really appreciate it. And I think from here on out, when the renovation really starts to pick up and I have really fun progress photos to share, it'll be really, really great. It'll be really fun to, to put together for you and uh, I'm looking forward to it. So thank you so much. Um, you all have a really happy new year. Hope you had a really Merry Christmas. And we'll come back in January with much more local Japan. There is an appealing idea about beauty, which goes back to Plato and Plotinus, and which became incorporated by various roots into Christian theological thinking. According to this idea, beauty is an ultimate value, something that we pursue for its own sake, and for the pursuit of which no further reason need be given. Beauty should, therefore, be compared to truth and goodness, one member of a trio of ultimate values which justify our rational inclinations. And that right there is an excerpt by Sir Roger Scruton from his book, Beauty, a very short introduction. And this quote is one of the most commonly cited quotes in the book. Uh, As we'll see in the introduction and through the whole book, uh, Sir Roger Scruton is concerned with moral relativism and how that plays into the, the world of beauty and art. In the introduction, he gives this nice hypothetical to the reader. He says that, in general, when people ask you, is this good, is this a good thing to do, you, you kind of just rationally get it, like yes or no, this is good, this is not good. Um, or if you're discussing something about the truth, like what is the truth, generally um, we can have a rational discussion about that through debate and through honest conversation about yes, this is true or no, this is not true. But he says that for some reason, Um, When it comes to beauty, it becomes much more complicated. 
And in the book, he he goes through some really in-depth arguments. But what I will do is skip to a different chapter because it's much more illustrative and it'll be much, I think, easier to communicate his arguments. In chapter six, which is titled Taste and Order, he provides a really interesting um, analysis on democratic culture, which I love because I think it'll probably hit home for a lot of us. He says, in a democratic culture, people are inclined to believe that it is presumptuous to claim to have better taste than your neighbor. By doing so, you are implicitly denying his right to be the thing that he is. You like Bach, she likes you too. You like Leonardo, he likes Mucha. She likes Jane Austen, you like Danielle Steele. Each of you exists in his own enclosed aesthetic world. And so long as neither harms the other, and each says good morning over the fence, there is nothing further to be said. And that is the democratic principle, right? We just, we have our own self-interests. And as long as we don't impede on others, then we should be free to do as we wish. That's the argument of John Stuart Mill and other classic liberals. But then Roger Scruton comes back and discusses the common pursuit. And this, uh, I'll read the scenario first that he gives, but then I'll also tie it down to something I've experienced in my own neighborhood back in Los Angeles. Your neighbor fills her garden with kitsch mermaids and Disneyland gnomes, polluting the view from your view. She designs her house in a ludicrous Costa Brava style in loud primary colors that utterly ruin the tranquil atmosphere of the street and so on. Now her taste has ceased to become a private matter and inflicts her itself on the public realm. We begin to dispute the matter. You appeal to the town council, arguing that her house and garden are not in keeping with the street, and this particular part of town is scheduled to retain a Georgian serenity, that her house clashes with the classical facades of adjacent buildings. We know from experience that there is much to argue about here, and that argument does not aim to win by whatever means, but rather to generate a consensus. Implicit in our sense of beauty is the thought of community, of the agreement in judgments that make social life possible and worthwhile. That is one of the reasons why we have planning laws, which in the great days of Western civilization have been extremely strict, controlling the height of buildings, the materials to be used in construction, the tiles to be used in roofing, even the crenellations on buildings that face the thoroughfares. So I, yeah, I definitely experienced this because in my neighborhood where I live or my, where, my, where I grew up, we were surrounded by beautiful homes, a lot of classical styled homes, a lot of arts and crafts homes. And on this one street, luckily not within my neighborhood, but there was a building that was built in like this 2000s modern style, which featured mostly concrete, maybe they painted over it, but just large rectangles and really large windows, um, very plain and kind of just kind of look almost like a like a modern office in Berlin or something. I'm, I'm so infuriated by it. I, every time I drive past it, I get mad because it it ruins the the vibe of the of the neighborhood, and it's very very selfish of whoever commissioned. First of all, of the architect, but then also of whoever commissioned it, whoever built it, yeah, and whoever bought it, whoever financed that project. It it it, it enrages me. I guess one minor contention I have with uh, Scruton here is that I don't really think that planning laws are super effective. I, I generally don't think compulsion is the best way for these things to work. I think 
I mean, this is easier said than done, but I mean, the best way is just to have people to have educated taste. And I guess the other reason why I'm not sure about city planning laws is because there's so many planning laws in Japan and they absolutely fail to do anything. Kyoto has this really famous law for not allowing really bright neon signs. And so like big brands like Starbucks or, or McDonald's or other, you know, like Japanese convenience stores, they're not allowed to have really big bright lights um, shining on their facades, which is nice. But at, at the end of the day, that strict city planning law doesn't really do much because the coherence of the entire city is totally messed up, where the downtown area is full of these really bad uh, modern skyscrapers, kind of skyscrapers, not, no, not skyscrapers, but uh, just tall buildings. And there's a large number of tall residential buildings that all across the city. The, the number of machia, which are those little beautiful Kyoto townhouses, they're, they're disappearing in number every year. So, you know, I, I think those city planning laws, while they're well-intentioned, there's, there's so many ways to get around it that really the only way to create a beautiful city is if the people have the communal will to do it and if they're committed to a common pursuit that Roger Scruton talks about. Otherwise, I think the law can only do so much if you have um, bad incentives and you have bad taste, then things can go south really quick. Okay, he, he, he also brings us to other realms of, of life too. So he says, Many of the clothes we wear have the character of uniforms designed to express and confirm our inoffensive membership of the community. The office suit, the tuxedo, the baseball cap, the school uniform. As I suggested earlier, fashion is integral to our nature as social beings. It arises from and also amplifies the aesthetic signals with which we make our social identity apparent to the world. We begin to see why concepts like decorum and propriety are integral to the sense of beauty. But they are concepts that range equally across the aesthetic and the moral spheres. So we move away from what we can wear or what we can build and we move into what we ought to wear or what we ought to build. So there's a moral element to beauty. It's not just beautiful because I think it's beautiful, but there is a larger moral purpose behind it. And it's the morality is a sense of self-sacrifice and uh, community. He says, in the last analysis, there is much objectivity in our judgments of beauty, as there is in our judgments of virtue and vice. Beauty is therefore as firmly rooted in the scheme of things as goodness. It speaks to us as virtue speaks to us, of human fulfillment, not of things that we want, but of things that we ought to want, because human nature requires them. And so that is the thesis of his book. He also extends an olive branch to those who are more inclined towards experimentation. Because you might be thinking, well, all these strict rules will be so over, overbearing, it'll constrict my freedom to express myself. So he says here that uh, we must recognize that any attempt to lay down objective standards threatens the very enterprise that it purports to judge. So he says, no, you know, objective standards are not the be end all, um, be all end all. Rules and precepts are there to be transcended, and because originality and the challenging of orthodoxies are fundamental to a, to the aesthetic enterprise, an element of freedom is built into the pursuit of beauty, whether the minimal beauty of everyday arrangements or the higher beauties of art. So he says that we do have these limits that are set in place, but the purpose 
is that we know the the box that you're working within and if you are someone with high skill you should be able to transcend that and 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 create new new forms of beauty new forms of create new classics according to many philosophers and anthropologists however the experience of the sacred is a universal feature of the human condition and therefore not easily avoided for the most part our lives are organized by transitory purposes but few of these purposes are memorable or moving to us every now and then we are jolted out of our complacency and feel ourselves to be in the presence of something vastly more significant than our present interests or desires we sense the reality of something precious and mysterious which reaches out to us with a claim that is in some way not of this world so he's saying we are in touch with the transcendent every once in a while if we have our eyes open this happens in the presence of death and especially the death of someone loved we look with awe on the human body from which the life has fled this is no longer a person but the mortal remains of a person and this thought fills us with a sense of the uncanny we are reluctant to touch the dead body we see it as in some way not properly a part of our world almost a visitor from some other sphere this experience is a paradigm of our encounter with the sacred and it demands from us a kind of ceremonial recognition so i mean i guess if you are a psychopath you wouldn't care but to the to the normal human we do care deeply about death and treating a dead body as you know the home for a soul like there there's no there's no escaping if you're a rational human being there's no escaping that we do feel these things he also says here there are other occasions when we are in a similar way startled out of our day-to-day preoccupations in particular there is the experience of falling in love this too is a human universal and it is an experience of the strangest kind the face and body of the beloved are imbued with the most intense life but in one crucial respect they are all like the body of someone dead they seem not to belong in this empirical world the beloved looks on the lover as beatrice looked on dante from the point outside the flow of temporal things the beloved object demands that we cherish it and that we approach it with an almost ritualistic reverence and there radiates from those eyes and limbs and words a kind of fullness of spirit that makes everything anew so the way that sir roger scruton thinks about this subject overall is that there are some universal values that we have as humans or experiences whether it's love or death or uh, like the pursuit for truth um acts of kindness and all of those virtues that we act out are tied up with beauty so to him beauty is really a moral discussion something is beautiful because it serves some sort of higher purpose here's an important caveat that scruton says i don't say that works of art are sacred things though many of the greatest works of art started life in that way including the statues and temples of the greeks and romans and the altar pieces of medieval europe but i do say that they are or have been part of the continuing human attempt to idealize and sanctify the objects of experience and to present images and narratives of our humanity as a thing to live up to and not merely a thing to live i'm i'm thinking back to my discussion with with nicholas boy smith where we talked about how humans and what they build are a result of their culture a result of like their place in history 
And we talked about postmodernism going out of the post-war era where I guess the best word for it would be like the nation state, maybe like rejecting nationalism, I think would be a good, maybe a good term to use. And so there was a movement of architecture that was international, that had no local identity, that there were buildings that you could find anywhere in the world. And so in the same, in the same way, some of the greatest works of architecture in Roger Scruton's mind are buildings that humans built to attempt to idealize and sanctify their experiences in the, the into the physical world. You know, that's one reason why religious buildings are always very beautiful, whether it's like a temple in Kyoto or a church in Italy or a mosque in Turkey. I want to go to this one section that discusses like how that would look like in practice, how to manifest those those beliefs into the physical world. There is an aesthetic minimalism exemplified by laying the table tidying your room, designing a website, which seems at first sight quite remote from the aesthetic heroism exemplified by Bernini's St. Teresa in Ecstasy or Bach's well-tempered clavier. You don't wrestle over these things as Beethoven wrestled over the late quartets, nor do you expect them to be recorded for all time among the triumphs of artistic achievement. Nevertheless, you want the table, the room, or the website to look right, and looking right matters in the way that beauty generally matters, not by pleasing the eye only, but by conveying meaning and values which have weight for you and which you are consciously putting on display. So just a quick thing before I continue is I love this discussion because it really goes back to um, The Beauty of Everyday Things, written by Suetsu Yanagi, famous Japanese philosopher and the founder of the Folks Crafts Movement. He was also very much against industrialization in the same, or a reaction to industrialization in the same way that the arts and crafts movement was in the UK and the US. Okay, continuing. This platitude is of great importance in understanding architecture. Venice would be less beautiful without the great buildings that grace the waterfronts. But these buildings are set amongst modest neighbors, which neither compete with nor spoil them. Neighbors whose principal virtue resides precisely in their neighborliness, their refusal to draw attention to themselves or to claim the exalted status of high art. Ravishing beauties are less important in the aesthetics of architecture than things that fit appropriately together, creating a soothing and harmonious context, a continuous narrative as in a street or a square, where nothing stands out in particular and good manners prevail. In addition to setting the table, cleaning your room, designing a website, which are you know very like kind of boring tasks that are none, nonetheless important, that you should do them properly and make things look good. It's also important that humble buildings look good. These churches in Venice are so gorgeous is because their neighbors behind them or to their sides are lower to the ground. They're humble, they adhere to a common style, and they lift up the, the cathedral. They, they're like a supporting cast. I'm going to share some photos in the show notes of two examples that he has in the book. One, which is the St. Maria della Salute in Venice, which is beauty. Uh, which is beautiful, and it's enhanced because of the modest surrounding uh, around it, versus um, St. Paul's Cathedral in London, which is a gorgeous building, 
but the beauty of the building is being destroyed by, quote, an arrogant setting. Once again, beauty comes about because there are ethics involved. In this case, it's manners. You, you have to treat your neighbors with respect. And also, there's this very strong sense of hierarchy where the church is greater than the surrounding buildings, which are greater than the lampposts, which are greater than the street. But they all work together to create some kind of harmony. which And all of the pieces together enhance each other. He says... Much that is said about beauty and its importance in our lives ignores the minimal beauty of an unpretentious street, a nice pair of shoes, or a tasteful piece of wrapping paper, as though those things belong to a different order of value from a church by Bramante or a Shakespeare sonnet. Yet these minimal beauties are far more important to our daily lives and far more intricately involved in our own rational decisions than the great works which, if we are lucky, occupy our leisure hours. He says again, Um, Later on the page, this does not mean that the humble and harmonious street is not beautiful. Rather, it suggests that we can understand its beauty better if we describe it in in another and less loaded way, as a form of fittingness or harmony. So beauty happens when everything is in its right place. So, you know, there's a lot of... um, Back in the day, there was an architectural movement about how form follows function, where functionality was everything you just needed a building that worked um, even if it was ugly and so yeah Scruton here also says that yes you need to have a building that actually works that doesn't you know fall to the ground but the function is bound up with the aesthetic goal so he says here for as an example the column is there to add dignity to support the architrave the architrave is basically a beam to raise the building high above its own entrance and so to give it a distinguished place in the street, and so on. In other words, when we take beauty seriously, function ceases to be an independent variable and becomes absorbed into the aesthetic goal. This is another way of emphasizing the impossibility of approaching beauty from a purely instrumental viewpoint. Always there is a demand that we approach beauty for its own sake, as a goal that qualifies and limits whatever other purposes we might have. So that's uh, his his example of the column and architrave and all those different words. Uh, it's a good example. And if you if you want to really learn more about um, classical architecture, I highly recommend this guy named Brent Hull. His B R E N T H U L L on YouTube. His his channel is unbelievable, and he does a lot of the work that I want to do, which is restoring beautiful homes. So he does a lot of work in restoration of classical buildings, and he is an absolute master in the classical language of architecture. And um, yeah, I highly recommend him. He's awesome. I also wanted to just quickly discuss taste. He says here, It is true, however, that people no longer see works of art as objects of judgment or as expressions of the moral life. Increasingly, many teachers of the humanities agree with their incoming students that there is no distinction between good and bad taste, but only between your taste and mine. And this goes back to that idea of democracy, right? People just try to get out, try to not bother each other. And so they just say, oh, you're, you know, your taste and my, your your taste is no better than my taste because you're you're a dignified citizen who's, who deserves um, to have their voice heard, right? But he says here, But imagine someone saying the same thing about humor. 
Jung Chang and John Holliday recount one of the few recorded occasions when the young Mao Zedong burst into laughter. It was at the circus when a tightrope walker fell from the high wire to her death. Imagine a world in which people laughed only at others' misfortunes. What would that world have in common with the world of Moliere, of Mozart, of Cervantes, or of Lauren Stern? Nothing save the fact of laughter. It would be a degenerate world, a world in which human kindness no longer found its endorsement in humor, in which one whole aspect of the human spirit would have become stunted and grotesque. Imagine now a world in which people showed an interest only in sign urinals, in crucifixes pickled in urine, or in objects similarly lifted from the debris of life and put on display with some kind of satirical or look-at-me intention. In other words, the increasingly standard fare of official modern art shows in Europe and America. And just in case you, you're not sure what he's talking about there, there was an artist, quote, um, in quote, hand quotes, air quotes, um, who put a crucifix in a in a jar of urine and he put it on display in a in a museum and for some reason people like went to see it um so that's what he's talking about like how low our tastes have become in the modern art world uh he continues what would such a world have in common with that of duccio giotta velasquez or even cesane of course there would be the fact of putting objects on display and the fact that are looking at them through aesthetic spectacles. But it would be a world in which human aspirations no longer find their artistic expression, in which we no longer make ourselves images of the transcendent, and in which mounds of rubbish cover the sights of our ideals. So you can really tell in the way he writes this that he it's a very passionate section of the book. But I'm so glad that he writes it because it makes me feel like I'm not crazy. It makes me feel like what I see everywhere um, in Japan cities or in in the United States for that matter, in, in our downtown or in new developments, um, that there is just something sick and that I'm not the only one who's noticing it. So that's that's heartening. Uh, also, Brett, I mentioned Brent Hull on YouTube. He also speaks in this kind of language, and it's very reassuring. So flipping back over to the last chapter, which is The Flight from Beauty, he writes, In an age of declining faith, art bears enduring witness to the spiritual hunger and immortal longings of our species. Hence, aesthetic education matters more today than at any previous period in history. And that is where I will leave the book. If you're interested in this kind of more philosophical um, realm of of architecture and of beauty, and to, you know, I guess for my case, I try to get my arguments straight. Uh, I think it's an excellent book to start. He's one of the most prolific philosophers and writers of our time. <laughs>